every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Idris Siddiqui. Idris owns a number of companies, including the South Jersey Group. South Jersey Group is a concrete, paving, and stormwater management company. He also owns South Jersey Recycling. His background is incredible. He was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, and emigrated to the United States when he was just three years old. He also spent time as a Department of Defense uh, interpreter for the Marine Corps in Afghanistan later in his life. Idris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm looking forward to Absolutely. talking to you. So Same for here. The, for, the, uh, for the show today, I'm going to be drinking a uh, Dewey Beer Company beer. It's the Delaware VIP Pale Ale. It's uh, made for the Starbird, the world-famous uh, bar down in Dewey Beach, Delaware. What are you? Uh, what are you going to be getting after today? Well, I'm not a big beer drinker, Brian. So uh, I decided to go with you know uh, Old Faithful, you know a little tequila oh. at three thirty on a. Uh, <laughs> I love it on a Monday. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what the heck? Why not? You know, <laughs> I love it. That's great. Well, cheers. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Cheers, buddy. All right. Well, let's start at. The, let's start with. Tell us a little bit about your companies. So we're a we're a site work business, you know, um, which which really is like a catch all term uh, we use in the industry. But typically, typically what we specialize in or focus on is uh, what I like to call infrastructure work. When you look at a new uh, development, a new site being developed, for example, a housing development or some new building going in, you know, we do things like putting, cutting in the roads and paving the roads and putting the curbs in and the sidewalks in and sort of making sure that everything is there for when the actual building is being built, right? Got it, yeah. Um, that's why I call it the infrastructure of it because, you know, obviously you don't build 50 houses and there's not a road or you know, <laughs> or a sidewalk going to the house, you know? Right. So um, uh, we, our businesses are kind of, most of what we do is interrelated. So even our, even the South Jersey Recycling, which is our trash business, you know, which is really a roll-off dumpster service. Yeah. Um, it stemmed from like our own personal need for these things. And, you know, being uh, young and maybe a little bit naive, you know, we thought, hey, well, why don't we just own our own trucks and our yeah. own containers, you know? Hey, we need so, this. Why don't we do it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we did, we, 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 um, that is our core business, the site work business, the scrap metal businesses, the, the recycling businesses. Those are all those are sort of like ancillary businesses that were formed after we had this core business that we wanted to get up and running, which is the South Jersey Group, which we you know we call SJ Group now because we do work in you know southeastern PA, Delaware. Sure. Not just South Jersey. That's how, by the way, that's how narrow-minded we were when we were getting down. Like, oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be like great in South Jersey. Like, you know, like total idiots. <laughs> yeah, that's a know? little limiting in the- Yeah, uh, absolutely. Could be. 
Yeah. Absolutely. So you guys are basically like the first ones in in a neighborhood. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We're the fir- we're the first ones in. That's precise. Okay. Well, I'm really interested in your background because the way I view it, you, I mean, you're sort of the embodiment of the American dream. Like you come, you come to the United States when you're three years old, uh, you know, you live in, you live in Afghanistan and it's not like when you're trying to leave Afghanistan to come to the United States that you just say, hop on a plane and get here. So explain a little bit about the process it took for your family to get over here. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, well, my parents were born and raised, obviously, in Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, my mother was a teacher. My father worked in his father's pharmacy. My grandfather had a pharmacy and my dad worked there. And then in, right around the early 1980s, right around the time I was born, um, you know, Afghanistan had been uh, invaded by uh, Russian, you know, the Russian uh, government, Russian forces. And basically what happened is, I think in the beginning, it wasn't a big deal. No one, you know, they, they, there wasn't the serious nature um, of maybe full-blown war and, and, and strife. It was just kind of um, time probably took my parents, I don't know, two, three years to realize, hey, things are just not going to get any better, right? Yep. So they decide, so they decide, let's move. And you got to imagine at this time, there's a lot of chaos in their lives. Uh, my dad is one of 11. My mom is one of 14. Oh, wow. Both, both my mom and dad's, uh, uh, both of my parents' fathers had passed away at this time where they're making this decision. Okay. No one knows exactly where to go, but a, a common path was they, you flee to Pakistan or a neighboring country. And then you tried to find somewhere from there to go. Got it. Um, so essentially what happens is my father, because he's a part of the, you know, war effort, yeah, can't just get up and leave because then he's considered a traitor, right? On right. the one hand. On the other hand, he's trying to do what's best for his family. Sure. And so he sends my mother and I on our own first ahead wow. of him. And I don't even think they knew this. Uh, and I, I've never really asked him, but my mom was pregnant at the time. You know, she's maybe a couple months pregnant. And so... The journey is basically, you know, a series of different types of transportation. But one of the main things is you eventually get on a bus and you use this bus to cross into Pakistan. And then they, the Russians had set up checkpoints where they would check to see who was leaving the country and what was their reason for leaving. So my mom, we go to this, you know, border checkpoint and they, uh, some Russian soldiers come on board and, and uh, they're asking my mom her name. And my mom said, you know, I was panicked. I had a kid with me, you know. Right. And she's traveling alone, which is sure. not the greatest situation to be in. Yeah. Right. And uh, so she said, I struggled and stammered to tell the guy my name. And then um, he asked me where I was going. And this guy from behind put his hand on my shoulder and says, oh, this is this is my sister-in-law. We're going to my son's wedding. Oh, wow. And the guy's like, yeah. And the guy's like, and the guy is traveling with his wife and happens to be sitting behind my mom and saw that she was like struggling, jumped in. And the soldier basically said, OK, and like, let her go. And they wow. were able to we were able to make the rest of the journey. You know, listen, some some guy on a bus minding his business doesn't want to get himself in trouble, doesn't say anything. And who knows where we end up? Sure. Right? Uh, probably not sitting here. <laughs> I can yeah, that, tell you that much. That's kind you know? of crazy to think about. That that is such a sort of like a small thing that happened that potentially changed the entire trajectory of your family tree. Oh, without a doubt. 
without a doubt. It's incredible. I mean, that is incredible. Give you an idea. I asked my mom years later, I said, Hey, did you like, after you got off the bus, did you like go to this guy and like tell, thank him or anything? She said, literally when he got off the bus, he took off with his wife. He left me alone. He didn't say a word to me and I didn't say a word to him. And she's like, I can't believe you're telling me this because I never even, it never even occurred to me to go thank him. That's crazy. You know, because she was just, her nerves were shot, right? She's, she was, by the way, it, it's not like, she, it's not like, you know, you board a bus and you're heading there and you'll be there in a few hours. This right. is like my mom, this is days of struggling without food and water, yeah. right? Yeah, you're not going to it's, Atlantic it's, City it's, from, uh, from New York. <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. It's a, uh, it's, it's a sincere hassle. Um, to, and then, and then on top of that, my mom's pregnant. She, you know, we get to Pakistan where my mom's, my a uh, good chunk of my mom's side of the family had had gone um, to one specific town called Peshawar. Uh-huh. And they were there. My mom met up with them. My dad ended up, my dad had to walk most of this his trip overnight because the terrain in Afghanistan, especially like from north to south, is like night and day, right? It's north right. is mountainous, mountainous, lush, green. The south is harsh desert with mountains along one side of it, right? Yeah. The, you can't imagine walking for weeks in that kind of in that kind of terrain. It's 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 miserable. Right. But to give you an idea, my mom gave birth, right? This is how tough these people are, my parents, right? I couldn't do what they did. I, I think about it sometimes. I just don't know that I had, I'd just be like, all right, man, I guess this is it. Like, I'll just stay here and see what happens. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not leaving the United States. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I've known. It's, uh, it, it all goes down here, you know? Yeah. So, but listen, thank God for their foresight. Sure. Right? Um. So to give you an idea, my mom gave birth in like in a my, to my brother two months premature he's weighs barely two pounds wow in a in a hospital in the 80s in pakistan right like that's not great that's not great today in the united <laughs> states you know what i mean like yeah in, in those days in those days to give you an idea my mom told me a story about how there was another lady in the hospital and they literally dropped her kid in the hallway and he died and they were like sorry yeah we dropped your kid in the hallway like he literally slipped out of our hands we cracked his head on his you know what i mean that it's unbelievable that's That's the kind of hospital my mom gave birth in yeah fortunately for my brother my mom is his blood type Ah. and my mom had a brother who was her blood type and his blood type so they were able to give blood to to him right because he needed he needed a uh uh, transfusions and what, what, whatever else. Um, uh, during his time, he was in an incubator for, for a long time. Yeah. Several, several months. I mean, he, I think he was a couple months old before my dad even met him. Wow. Okay? That's crazy. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so if you think, right, my dad comes there, he comes to Pakistan, he meets up with us. Um, you know, they've been through all this physically trying things. They've been through, emo- they're emotionally drained. They're just trying to figure out where to go. And my, my parents decide they want to come to the United States. At this time, some of the family members had moved, are moving into Europe. They're going to Holland and Germany and Italy, and so on and so forth, England. Um, my parents wanted to come to the United States. My mom's mom was here in the United States. So she just, they, they just, that's what they decided. But the best way to come to the United States was through India. They had to go to India. 
So they um, go from Afghanistan to Pakistan to India, and then they get to to, to the United States. And we stayed in, I, I want to tell you, we stayed in India in New Delhi for probably eight months or so. I know oh, it was wow. almost a year. Uh, we ended up staying there and uh, we traveled together. I mean, you know, we, we, we lived in these, you know, little apartments in India, you know, we lived across the street from a park. We did all these, we did all these different things together, but um, we, as kids, obviously don't know that our parents are fleeing a war zone, right? Sure. We're just kids. We just think like, like, this, hey, is, this cool. is cool. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So once, once my brother was healthy enough, we moved to New Delhi and from New Delhi, we moved to the United States. So we came to the United States during the uh, Reagan administration, okay. you know, yeah. not, my parents didn't speak the language and they had about the equivalent of about $70 in cash, wow. you know? And so uh, we made our way to sort of the New England area, if you will, Connecticut, yeah. New York area. That's crazy. And then, so even once you get here, things aren't super easy because you're moving around all the time. So you you went to seven schools uh, throughout while you're growing up. Oh yeah, I mean, you gotta imagine like my parents moved around a lot in search of like the best job opportunities for themselves, you know, so that they could provide for us. At the time, I didn't really enjoy all the moving around. To be honest, I had you know the unfortunate role of being you know, the new kid sure. pretty much every year or two until I went to high school. Right. Um, so <laughs> so you know you know I, it wasn't it wasn't the greatest I would say in terms of like feeling like you had a home and a place and friends and I I I constantly had to make new friends. Like that was just a thing I had to do. And I kind of got used to it. And it's funny, my parents moved, we lived in Brooklyn. We lived in Connecticut, in, in two, you know, in uh, Waterbury, Connecticut. Uh, we lived in Queens, New York. Uh, we lived in outside of Reading, PA. And that's eventually where I went to high school. But um, I never held on to friendships as a kid because I just thought, hey, eventually my parents are going to be like, we're moving over here. And yeah. these kids I'm never going to be able to keep in touch with. Right. You know, and it predates cell phones and stuff. Yeah. I and mean, you literally had to be a pen pal. You yeah. Know? Right. Yeah. Right. No, no MySpace, no Facebook, no, uh, no. Instagram. No. Yeah. No. But I will tell you, um, looking back on it, there were some major positives that came from all the moving around. You know, yeah. one of the one of the things that served me well is, you know, the ability to make friends, you know, yeah. and because I always was under the gun to make new friends. I, I knew I knew how to were, you know, that's not something everyone is born to naturally do. Sure. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, that, that that is a huge positive to be able to, you know, integrate yourself into a community multiple times as a kid, that can't be easy to do. You know, most kids switching schools one time is really difficult, let alone seven right. in different parts of the country, you know? Right. Right. Um, so you grad, you go to Penn state, you graduate from Penn state, and then an opportunity comes up for you to, to go back to Afghanistan. Talk a little bit about that. So I essentially, you know, I go to, I, I, go, I go to college, I study, you know, uh, economics and finance and, and, you know, I, think to myself, well, I'm going to one day work on Wall Street, you know? Yeah. I, I, I laugh because I think of the things like I, I just, you know, a few months ago, I listened to the John Boykin episode, right? And he's yeah. like, I didn't even know selling insurance was a thing. <laughs> right. And it's just, it was the same thing for me, you know, like, you know, like I, what I thought of getting a degree 
in business was you worked on Wall Street or you worked at a bank. Yeah, right? that was like the next step in line. Correct. Like yeah. it never occurred to me to be like, oh, you could be like the CFO of Coca-Cola. Like sure. that didn't occur to me. Like that's right. a job. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, you know, like, like in my, in, in, in my thing, like in, I grew up, right. You have to remember I'm the firstborn child of immigrant parents, arguably from South Central Asia. So yeah. to them, like, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, like to them, like the VP of finance for Costco is broke, right? Like he has, he, that's not a real job to them. It's like, but, but if he was, if I was a podiatrist per se, they'd be like, Oh my God, this guy's brilliant. You know? So, so I, I tell you this because I went to work, I decided after college, <clears throat> I had a few uh, had a few job opportunities, but I took one with a really small soda company that I had interned for yeah. while I was in college, right? And the company was called Boiling Bottling. The guys that owned that were my were eventually become my brothers in law. By the way, oh, I didn't know that at the time, but uh, that's a crazy. But, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's Nicole. That's Nicole's older brother's own man. So anyway, the experience was fantastic. I went to go work there. I learned a lot. I mean, I I worked a lot of hours there. I basically treated that job as kind of like a you know postgraduate degree. Sure. I, I I went to work every day. I spent a lot of hours there, and I learned a lot about operations and logistics. Oh, okay. okay. And I got really involved in the production. I started to really enjoy the manufacturing business. Okay. And so they gave me several opportunities. And, and you know, my two brothers-in-law, to their credit, are, are really bright guys, you know, yeah. really smart guys. Mark, uh, uh, my brother-in-law, Mark, is like a food scientist from Penn State. My other brother, my other brother-in-law, Ron's a really bright guy himself. He's, you know, well-read, well-traveled, those kinds of guys. And they they gave me a lot of opportunities there. And what happened was, is not, and not, nothing against them, but they took on a VC, a private equity company, and and all of a sudden the culture there really changed. Sure, you know. And I started. I went from somebody who really loved his job to somebody who hated. Ah, uh, it's job, brutal. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm on the phone with my mom, right? And I say to her, hey, "Look, mom, I <laughs> I hate my job. Like I, <laughs> I hate the people I work with. I, I hate going. You yeah. know." And she was like, "Well, there's this opportunity." you know, where they're hiring people that speak our native language, which is Pashto. That's speaking and spoken in the south uh, of Afghanistan and in the northern part of Afghanistan, they speak Farsi, which is similar to the same language as they speak in Iran. Right. Okay. Yep. So the, the need for Pashto speakers was very high. And the reason why is as the military uh, made its move. They were moving closer towards the South, right? You know, they had invaded the North and then were working their way South. And the challenge is that English speaking and Pashto speaking United States citizens, there's only, I want to tell you, I, if I remember it correctly, there was only like 30 to 40,000 capable individuals. Yeah. Right. So I, I I told my mom, I was like, okay, yeah, what, what's the big deal? How hard could it be? I just, I'll do it. What's the big deal? That's yeah. why I go ahead and do it. <laughs> and, you know, just like everything else, it was not easy. It yeah. was not straightforward. It was so difficult. It was, uh, the application was a hundred pages long or something ungodly. Oh, good Lord. And 
what ends up happening is I get into the program. I go down, I go down to uh, Fort Meade and I go through the training and it's a, it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty extensive background and polygraphs and you name it. I mean, they're trusting you with information and, you know, you know, sometimes classified information. So they want to make sure that who they're bringing on is someone that's trustworthy. Um, I went through the entire process and each, so I think the class started out with like a hundred people in it. And eventually every week, somebody, some people would get eliminated. Oh, wow. And when there was about 80 or 90, 80 or 90 people, so pretty early on um, left in the group, they asked for volunteers uh, because you're technically you're working for the Department of Defense, but the Department of Defense is the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard. It's everyone. It's right. not just you know the Army, right? Yeah. So the one area they had the biggest problem was is people would go through the entire program. The government would spend all this money getting them through the program, and eventually they'd get assigned to a Marine Corps unit and they'd want to quit. Sure. Yeah. Right. And say, oh, I'm not going. With I'm not Marines. doing like, that. That's too dangerous. Right. Yeah. I was hoping you would like send me over there with like the army, you know, where we're setting up bases and running like logistics and stuff. So not on the front uh, lines. That's right. So they asked for volunteers and I was the only person in the group that volunteered to go with the Marine Corps. And uh, yeah, I had a bunch of people ask me, like, are you crazy? You know, and my logic was like, again, you know, for better or worse, my logic was kind of like, look, if I'm going to go to a war zone, like why not go with like, the guy like the shooters you know right. what i mean like why not go with the guys that are trained to do this you know yeah. <laughs> you know you're 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 part of a supply convoy and get blown up like that sucks like why not be with these guys you know those are some basic <laughs> what do i know you know at the time i'm 23 24 years sure. old right? you're invincible when you're that age most yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah 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 in your head anyway yeah yeah and and um so what the real kicker for me was was that it was sort of a path to freedom, really and truly, because it was an opportunity for me to kind of like wipe the slate clean, leave this job that I wasn't happy in, go try this out. And they were paying really good money. So I was going to be able to save a bunch of this money. Um, and so I so I went and, you know, I could tell you a thousand stories from no doubt. the 13 months I spent there. But one of the things I, I'll, I'll tell you is I've never had more respect for our government or our military um, before, before versus after I've never had the same amount of respect. It's just, it's unbelievable what, you know, these young, you know, men and women do, they literally go there for, you know, $20,000 a year. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's insane. You, you, you can't fathom somebody who's willing to live, uh, you know, for seven months to a year, 8,000 miles from home in the desert eating, you know, packaged rat more or less. You know? I can't even imagine. I, cu- I cu- couldn't even imagine. I weighed, I weighed what I weigh now. And when I left there, I was 77 pounds lighter. You know? Holy crap. Yeah. I look like a totally, hu- to tell you, I look like such a different human being that I ran into a guy when I started the program on my way out, I ran to him in an airport in Dubai and he was, and we started talking and he was like, Hey, Hey, do you have a cousin or something? And it was me. He was talking, I was like, he's a fat guy. Like, you know, <laughs> That's was awesome. he was talking about. Yeah. And so uh, I was like, no, no, that was me, man. I'm telling you, that was me. So anyway, um, 
So I, I did the program and the program is kind of really, really amazing. So based on based on a lot of different things, I ended up going with with, you know, uh, the Marine Corps version of uh, counterintelligence officers. Yeah. Which really, really worked out for me because they were like really smart guys. And uh, it was exhausting to be around them because they are on all, all the time. Yeah. You know, and you just there's just, you know, you want to relax. They, they don't even know how to relax. They're so, you know, they're pretty high, strong individuals. Sure. Um, but uh, but I had some fantastic experiences with them. I I, I was able to spend um, one entire tour with my original team. And what happens is, is about a month out from when you're supposed to go home. A uh, convoy comes in with the with the next team so they can have a smooth transition. Yeah. Um, and the month they don't send the whole team out. What they do is they send out, you know, two, three key guys and they kind of like get the lay of the land so that when their guys come, they can debrief them. And when I was leaving my next team that came in, I had gotten such like n- nice reports written about me Yeah, that they begged me to stay for their whole tour. Oh, wow. So, so I just, all I said to him was, man, I, I just need like two weeks to go home and see my family. Like I'm literally like done, like mentally and physically, I'm just done. And they were like, yeah, no problem. Two weeks, go ahead. So I left for two weeks. I left for two weeks and uh, I literally went home, saw my family for a few days. I flew Nicole with Nicole to Dubai. Yeah. And then from Dubai, she flew home and I flew back in Afghanistan. Holy and, crap. Uh, I proposed, I proposed to her there. Oh no. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it was all, it was awesome because, you know, I'll tell you one quick story about my time there. Okay. Yeah. It was awesome because <clears throat> I learned so much about what it means to be a team and not an individual, what it means to be, you know, a part of a unit, Yeah. you know, um, because it's not just you, you know, you're, you're the weakest link in their group is you because you're not a Marine. Right. right. Something yeah. happens to you. You don't know. You don't have their years of training. Good. Point. So they're always looking out for you. They're always telling you where to sit and where to stand and which way to walk and how not to grab something and how to grab something like it's incredible. The amount of detail these guys think. Yeah. Um. So. We're there. We land and uh, we're in we're in Bagram Air Force. Just to give you an idea of the size of this place is uh, it's like. 30 square miles. Okay. Okay. The, the, the United States government built a place with a friendlies in it there. Okay. <laughs> Literally. Uh, TGI Fridays is on this base. It's humongous. Okay. Yeah. So we're only there for a couple of nights and then we're flying down to our, our headquarters, which is called Camp Leatherneck. No surprise there um, uh, for the Marine Corps. And then, uh, so we go to the, we go to Camp Leatherneck and up until now, everything is kind of like, cool man this is amazing you know but like we've not done anything we've literally we've woke up in the morning went for a run ate food played you know played cards Cards, went to bed we've done nothing we've not done our job right yeah they're like yeah well we're gonna be flying uh down to we're gonna be flying down to uh you know your camp which is now now not a not a base they call those cops right yeah combat outposts you're not no longer on a base that has 
a chow hall and showers. Right. They're now going to what they call an outpost. <laughs> you don't want to be in an outpost, right? <laughs> so, so our outpost was so small and had nowhere to land. You had to land outside of it. They threw all your shit off and then you ran into the outpost, right? You ran into the base. So anyway, we're flying on a Osprey. And yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with Ospreys, right? And two propellers uh, on each one on each side. It takes off like a helicopter. When you when they get up in the air, they tilt those bad boys forward and they fly like a plane until they're ready to land again. Which and then they'll tilt them back. So I had never been in a helicopter in my life. Yeah. Right. And uh, here I am, like flying a 40, 45 minute to an hour flight on a on an Osprey. So. I get on this uh, helicopter and of course it's not like seats like you normally would think it's cargo netting mounted to the hull of the, of the uh, aircraft. Um, and they throw all your bags and stuff in the center and, and you sit in this cargo netting up against, <laughs> up against the uh, <laughs> steel of the uh, helicopter itself. And uh, so an Osprey has three crew members. It has a pilot, a co-pilot, and then a guy who's in the back with you. And what happens is, is in theater, what they call being in a war zone, they call it in theater. When you're in theater, they don't close the tail on, on these aircrafts. They actually have a 50 caliber machine gun mounted to the tail. And yeah. with this guy that's inside with you, that's a part of the crew, he has like this full body harness on. He's like tied into the, you know, <laughs> tied in and secured to the aircraft. And then he literally walks to the edge and he hangs his feet over the off side. The, that's insane. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's off the tail of this thing. And he's got his, you know, machine gun. And so helicopter takes off. And man, you know, it never, nothing felt real until then, right? Until then, I'm just hanging with the boys. Right? Sure, yeah. Right. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God, we're, we're going like somewhere serious, you know? Yeah. So there the helicopter takes off and my heart is in my throat i have like i'm i don't know if i'm gonna throw up or cry i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen yeah and i look around and like eight minutes into the flight everyone else is passed out just sleeping <laughs> i couldn't care less right there's uh you know so i'm the only i'm like the only worry war i'm like man it's uh, I think it's like three in the morning. Has this guy gotten enough sleep? Is he scanning the area properly? <laughs> Is he paying attention? You know? Yeah. So needless to say, as you can see, we landed in one piece. Um, we get off and I noticed this kid that's that was wearing the harness that was manning the gun. I noticed he's sitting over there by himself. I kind of go over to him. I'm like, hey, man, uh, I had a question for you. And remember, like, I'm I'm got a clean cut. I'm wearing a Marine frog suit. I'm wearing a Marine uniform. Right. He can't tell, he can't necessarily tell the difference between me and one of the guys in my unit. Sure. Right. Yep. So I said, oh, I'm like, Hey man, I had a quick question for you. This is what I said. Were you like, did you get enough sleep last night? Like, were you paying attention up there? And he's like, the hell are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm just saying like, you know, you're man manning the gun. Like, you know, were you yeah. okay? Like you feeling okay? He goes, let me, he's like, let me explain something to you, okay? So he said, there's three crew members, pilot, co-pilot, and gunner. And yep. he said, every time there's a shift, we rotate the job of gunner. And every time it's my turn to be on that gun, I pray to God someone shoots at us because I want to unload that. <laughs> 
right? <laughs> and I just I slept on every flight after that. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey man, these guys, this is what they're looking this is, for. They're ready. So they're looking for. Yeah. yeah. So why mile tent? So I I I had an amazing experience. I keep you know I I try to keep in touch with the with the 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 Marines that I I was there and deployed with, um, and uh, you know I came back. I used uh, I used the money to really to pay down my personal debts and use it as a startup money. Yeah, you know for what I wanted to do. Yeah. So all right. Well, so t- so two parts. First of all. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about it because literally over the weekend the, the Taliban took over, you know, the the entire uh, nation basically, and and you know the the capital fell and whatnot. And one of the articles I read um, yesterday was that there's a real concern for Afghan interpreters um, that they're sort of being sought out and lined up. So, you know, not to make this a political thing or anything, just kind of interested in your take about what's going on there right now given that you are from there and and went there as, as part of the uh with the with the department of defense what well my my personal belief is is that you know i never quite frankly i don't know enough about the politics of it all but i can tell you i'm not because i'm not a political person right yeah but one of one of the things i never understood the rush to get out of there i mean you know uh uh we still have a we still have a base in Okinawa, you know, in Japan. Right. Like, you know, like, and no one says like, "Hey, we should have gotten the hell out of there." Japan <laughs> seems to be pretty stable, you know. Like, it's it's insane, you know. Yeah. Um. You know, it's and the other thing is, is that for me, I saw those guys like firsthand. The the what they call they call those guys local interpreters. Yeah. Okay. Because they're from there. Sure. And a lot of them, man, their families had been tortured and all kinds of bad stuff had happened to them. Yeah. Right. And, uh, that was one of the main reasons why they even help, you know, U.S. forces or actually I should say NATO forces because they are helping the Brits. They're helping, you know, anybody that was there. Yeah. Um, so the 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 crazy thing to me is, is that that there wasn't some sort of an end game for at least those people that kind of like worked with the military, helped the military, at least give them an, an opportunity. Yeah. I know, look, you can't save millions of people. Right. right. Sure. Sure. It's just not possible. Yeah. But the, I I thought that it should have been a, you know, at, at a minimum, there should have been at least a strategy for those people because they did. I mean, they risked their lives every day by coming to the base Absolutely. and working and working with the military, yep. you know, and anybody will tell you, hey, I got letters of commendation. I got people that people that praised me here, left, right and everywhere for doing my 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 service and stuff. But honestly, those guys knew the local terrain. They knew which trails to take, which routes to take. They knew all of that stuff. And that's not something I could have helped them with. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, that they did. I mean, some of those guys really saved American lives. Yep. I think that's very well said. So so you take the money, pay off all your personal debts and use it to start a business. So is it that straightforward yeah. or is it explain no. how that went down? Yeah, no. So I come back. I really don't want to work for anybody. Right. I really <laughs> want to go into business for myself. Right. But I don't necessarily know what I want to do. And and honestly, the path of least resistance for me was my father-in-law, uh, uh, who's an incredible guy. Right. Like yeah. hard, one of the most hardworking guys. He owned a, you know, a small demolition company. OK. You know, he had a couple of guys, a couple of machines, a, a pickup truck. He he did little jobs and he he had little niche things that he was involved in and and one one of the things i tried to do was i tried to 
take over his company. Like, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to work with you. Like, I, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah. You're going to teach me everything there is to know about demolition. And, you know, my father-in-law is smart. He's a smart man. He, he told me, he said, he said, look, you know, take it easy. We'll, we'll go step by step. You got to learn everything. You can't just jump in day one and, you know, be, be in charge. COO, right? yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I, I now see much clearer at the time found frustrating, but now I see it much clearer is he just didn't want to have the responsibility of my, of me being successful or not. Yeah. He wanted me to do my own thing. Yeah. Not necessarily be in on his thing. And then if I'm not happy with it, I blame him for why I'm not happy with it. That's a pretty, you know? um, that's a pretty impressive thing for him to do. A hundred percent, you know, a hundred percent. He's yeah. smart. That's why, like I said, he's a very smart, old school Italian guy. And, and, and when I tell you, you know, I now appreciate it at sure. the time, of course I'm frustrated. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But he, he and my mother-in-law were, were super, super supportive of, of uh, me going out and doing something. And, and I worked with him and learned a lot. I mean, the guy's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the demolition world. Yeah. Um, and scrap metal and things of that nature. So my what I ended up doing was I started kind of like getting involved in little niche things. Right. Yep. So my father in law, my father in law knew how to tear things apart, whether it be trucks and, and, and equipment and buildings and things like that. And what I was trying to do was I was trying to get more involved in the scrap metal end of things. You yeah. know, how do we turn this into a saleable item? Right. right. In the scrap yeah. metal world. So I did things like I bought, you know, the brass shell casings that get left over after flare guns or, you know, in Groton, Connecticut, from right. a submarine base. Like I, I put 30, I put 30,000 miles on my car in six months. You know, yep. I drove everywhere. I, I knocked on so many doors. I tried to get in with this uh, guy named Len Whitehead. Uh, who was the head of all of Conrail and CSX's railroad uh, retirement scrap program. So okay. if they retired a locomotive, he was in charge of selling it. I right? got it. Uh-huh. The guy must have had 200 people in his Rolodex that could do that kind of work. And here I am calling him like, hey, Mr. Whitehead, look, my name's Idris. I'm from a company called Burns and Farina. And the guy would be like, click, hang up on me. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I called him so many times. And by the way, he answered his phone by answering it like this, right? Like he answered his phone and this is what he would say, Len. And I was like, oh, because his name was Len Whitehead. He answered the phone by yelling Len into the phone. I was like, and I'm always like, oh, Mr. Whitehead. So anyway, uh, but eventually he's like, hey, kids, stop calling me. I'll put you on the, I'll put you on the bid list, you know? And so over time, I started to make my own contacts. And eventually I get into tearing down a, um, uh, a facility in uh, Kenneth Square. Yeah. And that job kind of, set things in motion for me because it was a it was a pretty big job and a really brilliant guy local delaware guy gave me an opportunity like literally you saw i was like 25 i think i was 26 26 or 27 at the time um and he was just like he had this massive project and he was willing to like negotiate and talk with me and and get me involved in it He he had some smart people working for him that worked with us um, it was my, fa- it was my father-in-law's experience 
yep. that made him feel secure in letting me do the work. Yeah. But I kind of made the relationship and got the job going. So I get that. I get that. I get that job. And what happens is we have some issues, uh, personnel issues. Yeah. We end up we end up needing an equipment operator. So my father-in-law is at, at, at a scrapyard and he's telling the owners of the scrapyard that uh, he call, he referred to me as the kid all the time. Ah, you wouldn't believe what the kid did today. Ah, you wouldn't believe what... <laughs> So he's telling them how I fired a guy off the job and he was our main guy, right? <laughs> so, so he's like, you wouldn't believe what the kid did today. <laughs> you know, uh, he fired our main guy. So a guy, a truck driver, a guy who owns his own trucking company, this guy named Mike Moore, happens to be standing in there and he says, uh, look, um, I know a young kid that would love to come work for you guys. And I was like, all right, well, give me his number. He gave me his number. I called him on like a Saturday. He was huffing and puffing this kid that answers the phone, right? Yeah. Like, like he's physically laying blocked by hand. Oh, wow. Right? And I call him. I'm like, hey, man, look, my name's Idris. Oh, wow. He says, I said, would you like to come run a, you know, a 80,000 pound excavator for me? He says, when? I was like, I was like, uh, Monday, because it's Saturday, right? Saturday. Like, Monday. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Do you need another guy? I was like, sure, bring another guy with you. We got two machines. We can, we can, we can get him into another machine. He's like, yeah, absolutely. So he comes down, never having ter- torn down a thing in his life. Him and his, him and his father were in the construction business. And they did like, you know, uh, foundation work and concrete work, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, he says uh, his dad's a talented Mason. And and I, I this is where I've been fortunate in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, my partner, John, who I'm talking about now. Yeah. He's a brilliant guy. Right. Sure. Super smart. He he understands the world of construction like like just about anybody that has 100 years of experience. Yeah. OK. And he came there and he did such a fantastic job. And I landed another large demolition job right behind it. And he because of that or just as a coincidence? No, no, because of that, because we were doing what we were doing here that they recommended us for the guy that owned that property recommended us for another job down the road. Amazing. And and so uh, he came to me one day, John comes to me one day. He's like, look, man, I, you know, when I came to you guys, uh, I didn't have a lot going on, but you know, I, I kind of need to figure out what I'm doing. Cause I really should go back and I, you know, I work with my dad. Yeah. And I said, I said, look, John, my father-in-law's in his seventies. He's going to retire. Like I, I, I need, you know, we're young guys. He was 21 when I met him. Think about wow, that. That's crazy. 21. He's been operating equipment since he's like five or six years old. As a matter <laughs> of fact, like there's a great story about him, like the local fire truck, backed into a ditch or a pond or something and no one could help him because everyone was at work and John took his father's excavator and pulled the thing out of the, out of the ditch, you know, (laughs) at like six years old. Okay. That's amazing. So he's a, he's a, he's an incredible guy. And so I've been fortunate in that way where I met him and we kind of formed this SJ group, South Jersey group together. And we started to expand. We, we, you know, didn't, didn't really focus on demolition um, we kind of focused on just about anything that he had knowledge on. Yeah. I kind of trusted that he knew about it. And what I did was I was now on a huge learning curve, right? Sure. How yeah. to estimate, how to read the engineer's drawings and all of those things. And I just, 
I devoured books. I spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours with him looking at drawings and prints over the course of time and trying to learn as much as I could because he he had a wealth of knowledge when it came to that. What he was lacking is I'm not somebody who falls in love with the work. Right. We are a profit-driven company. We are not in this for (laughs) revenue, okay? (laughs) You know, you can't spend revenue, Brian. Right. That was the thing he was lacking. And, and, and there's, I can give you a, lots of anecdotal little uh, examples, but what I was, what I was good at, he didn't really care to be good at. And what he was good at, I didn't care to be good at. Like we own millions of dollars worth of trucks and equipment. I, if you took me outside and said, Hey, Andres, like, can you point to the water pump on this thing? I, I wouldn't even know where to, where to look right. for it. You know what I mean? I know. Okay. Put the hood up, but I don't know anything beyond that. Right. Yeah. It's not my thing. I don't pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm not that guy. I love that. So it's not my thing. It's such a great way. And I think, you know, it's come up a bunch of times in the podcast and I I deal with it personally in my my business is that Hmm. you have to get to a point where you go, where your ego can say to you, you suck at that. Like, why are you, and you don't like doing it. So why Mm -hmm. are you trying to get good at something you're not good at and that you don't like, or you can partner with someone that has a diff that looks at the same puzzle with a different set of lenses on it. I think it's a huge, huge thing to do. For sure. For sure. I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. You know what I mean? I, it's funny, you know, uh, one of the things I always, I'll always point out to people is, we are constantly learning things. As entrepreneurs, you're constantly learning things, right? Yeah. But there's, you can't be, and, and in, listen, in the early stages of every business, as I'm learning now, yeah. in the early stages of every business, you're the, you know, you're the HR yeah. guy, you're the payroll <laughs> guy, you're the, you yeah. know, you do it, or, or gal or whatever, you're doing everything, right? Absolutely. But as time goes on, you're not the expert. Yep. You cannot be the expert on every department. Yep. You have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to trust other people to do their job and do it better than you could have on your own. Absolutely. I, I couldn't right? agree with that more. Yep. I think, I think you nailed that. And I think that's when you really start to build, you go from that small business where you're living almost like job to job or client to client or whatever. And then you really start to run it like a real quote unquote real business. Correct. Yeah. So exactly. you start this business. You, it's not like you and John set out to create this business. It's sort of like, hey, I don't, I can't really work for my father-in-law. I'm not going to go work for someone else. You're not, John's not going to go back and work for his, for his dad. So you sort of said like, hey, let's figure this out. You know, we like each other. Let's do it. Yeah, that's exactly how it went. And it, it, and things started to happen very quickly from there because and we started to move and we had a lot of support from both John's dad and my father-in-law sure. in different ways, you know, different resources, different energy they put into it and different, um, believe it or not, a lot of their own personal experiences yeah. in a lot of ways, warning us like, Hey, better be careful. Like partnerships suck. You don't want to do this. Right. You know, Hey, you got to think this thing through. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, John, John's 21, I'm 26, 27 years old. And, and, I'm more just kind of like, yeah, listen, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Let's give right. it a try. Yeah. You know? And I was also at a point, I was also at a point where we were financially, because of this job and the next job, we were doing pretty good. Like yeah. not, uh, you know, not doing great, but we were doing pretty well, you yeah. know? So what ends up happening is 
we start thinking about other things. So to give you an idea, South Jersey Recycling, how it's born. We're literally doing a job that's costing us fifteen dollars to $25,000 a week in trash bills. Yeah. Okay. A week. And uh, we're sitting on like, yeah, how hard can it be to own the containers and run it ourselves? We'll pay ourselves the $15,000. Right. Right. <laughs> and then come to find out it took us, it took us like four, 13 or 14 months to get the permits to haul trash <laughs> in the state of New Jersey. Okay. Uh, you know, but this is the thing. This is the thing. Like when you have energy, yeah, you can offset that by experience. You know, you that's offset for experience, right? Because you're willing to you're willing to grind your head into a wall and, yes. and to make it work, right? Yep. What what happens is is as I've gotten older, I've realized. Hey, wait a minute. Well, what are we talking about getting involved in? Hold on. Let's let's get some details on this thing before we you know register a company and start paying for insurances and taxes and all yes. kinds of things, right? Yep. Um. And you can't just apply for those solid weights licenses. You, I had to hire an attorney who specializes in that. It was there's all these steps people skip, yeah. and I was one of those people because I would get excited about something and I would just think, "Yep, full bore, let's go at it." You yeah, know, absolutely. But but we learned together, right? We yeah. both we would learn together and we would understand what the right moves were. And look, we got you know we got a decent that's a decent business for us now, but it took time to get it there. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, uh, you're a voracious reader, as they say. Yes. And you, you, how many books a year do you read? I try to read, I try to read a minimum of 40 books a year. Okay. Okay. And they have to be really non-trade related. I don't like, I don't want to read construction books and sure. I don't read, I don't read uh, fiction books. I really read non-fiction books. Okay. So in the last, what's the, this year, 2021, what's the mo- your most favorite book that you read? Well, my most favorite book is a book I reread for okay. the second time, um, and it's called the the Checklist Manifesto. Okay, okay. it's by this like amazing, amazing uh, author uh, Atul Gawande, who also, by the way, happens to be a surgeon. Okay, okay, and this guy is not just a world renowned surgeon; he has time to write best selling right. uh, <laughs> books. You know, like right. that's when you know, like you're not. You know, like I tell people all the time, like I'm just a dumb contractor. They're like, oh, no, you're, not. you're a pretty smart guy. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. There's a guy on this planet is they, that, that's walking around that's not only performing life-saving surgeries, but writing, you know, Wall Street Journal best-selling best bestseller books. books. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, um, so, yeah, go ahead. No. Um, so I just want to ask you sort of one question yeah. as, we, as we wrap up here since we're running out of time. If you look at someone who is 26 and is thinking about starting a business, what's what's one piece of advice that you would give to them as, as, you know, something to push them in the right direction? I would tell them a couple of things. Okay. One, it's very, very important to network and have good people, good friends in your life. Yeah. Okay. Um, no one gets to where they are by themselves. I sure as hell didn't, you know, um, we've, we have very, very amazing people that have, uh, offered their resources in a lot of ways, time and energy, money, whatever. Um, so I would tell, I would tell them for one, you know, make sure that you're not just sticking with the same kids you grew up with, go outside of your circle, find, 
find as many friends as you can and don't be a taker, you know, give, give something to those relationships, offer something, be helpful. Um, Not everything has to be a business transaction, but as far as business advice goes, you know, Wayne, uh, Wayne Legato told me two things that that, uh, I have to credit him. You know, I'd love to just steal them and not, and not give him uh, the credit, but first piece of advice I would give him is don't go against your DNA. You know, if you're somebody who, who sleeps in till nine, d- don't open a bakery or don't, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <laughs> business is hard enough. Don't, yeah. don't like, if you're somebody who has to be in bed at eight 30, you know, don't, don't buy a bar. Yeah. Don't you know own a nightclub. Mean? That's right. Yeah. That's right. You're going to have problems, major problems. You can't fight your DNA. Okay. Yep. That's good. I like that. And the second piece of information is, most small businesses fail, okay? So one of the things you should do if you're going out there and you want to be involved in a certain industry or a certain business is buy another man's time, buy another person's time, okay? And, and essentially what that boils down to is find someone who's in the business you want to be in that doesn't want to be in it anymore, that yeah. wants to get out. You know, and this is not possible for all businesses, sure, but, but by and large, it's it's possible because think about it. There is a huge advantage to buying an existing business that already has even small things like phones and desks and computers. Yeah. You know, having that little bit of infrastructure in place helps you focus on the thing you actually want to do, which is run the business. It's a great right? idea. That's a great that's great. So, advice. Yep. Um, and, and, and it helps you to focus on, you know, operational uh, excellence and efficiencies rather than spending time and resources on finding an office to work out. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so those, those are two, I think those are two very important things. If you're going out and you want to start, start in business and do it sooner rather than later. Yep. I agree. There's never the, the there's never a great time to start a business. Just it's, no, it's sort of like, absolutely not. you know, it's interesting as I, as I sort of reflect back on this conversation, it seems to me that in your role in your business is, relationship guy, right? You know, you're building the relationships, you're, you're getting the, 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 the jobs, you're bidding the jobs, you're winning the jobs. To be sort of introspective about it, the fact that you had to go talk to people that you didn't know all the time when you were little is really playing out in your, in your adult life as your, as your main business. And I think you've learned sure. a lot to be able to help you, which I find super interesting. Yeah, well, and, 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 and the other thing too, Brian, is, is that one of my biggest issues with people in general is that, and I, listen, I get that this is a general, generalization, but it does bother. You know, in our country, we, we live in arguably the best country that ever has existed, right? Yep. We idolize actors and athletes. You know, yet most people don't know who like Leon Wiener is, right? right? From the state of Delaware, like one of the most incredible entrepreneurs the state has ever produced. 99% of people have no clue. No idea who he is. Yeah. Right. And here's a guy who is, who is the president of the National Association of Home Builders. Okay. And is the only one that's ever been the president whose life-size bust is in the uh, National Housing Center in Washington, (laughs) D.C., right? And no one's heard of him. And to me, to me, like, that's the great travesty is that you're not looking around you and saying, hey, you know, selling insurance is a business. Yep. You know, going out and talking to people and seeing how they've, their experiences and how they've made things work. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, talking to other entrepreneurs, 
all of us have similar challenges. For sure. Right? Yep. So it's a matter of finding people who are having similar challenges and try not try not try not to, uh, you know, try not to make their mistakes, but learn from those mistakes. Yep. It's definitely a, a collegial club that is happy to talk about landmines that they stepped on to help you navigate around those. I agree with you. Because there. when they go home, their wives and kids don't give a crap how they well, Dries, this you know, is awesome. I, I really enjoyed thanks, talking man. to you. Was, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it, man. It's good to be with you. Yeah. How, how was your Don Julio? Was it, was it? It was very good as always. Um, I, and I, I wish I would have had some lemonade and club soda because drinking straight tequila is not ideal, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> but whatever. Um, so this beer, actually, I think a Dewey beer company is, is actually the highest rated Delaware brewery on untapped, which is this app that I, that I own for, for, uh, for beers to check them in and, you know, to rate them. So I'm actually going to give this, I'm going to give this a four out of five. I really like this beer. So I'll be, uh, I'll be definitely drinking this again soon. Yeah, exactly. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Adris and his companies, Go to his website uh, at the southjerseygroup.com or on Instagram at sjgroup. And if you want to connect with me on Untapped, my username is brcarney7. To learn more about how my firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And finally, to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. Idris, thanks again. Cheers to you. Thank you, buddy. Cheers to you. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.